0: In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 storytelling program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. I got you at my where's she you. And here, they were guards and I was a combatant. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. that He had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. Do your own number do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to or... I don't care if it's if it's uh, a killing or uh, whatever. You just don't see it.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name is Anthony, and I'm speaking to Sky down in Texas. Howdy, Sky.
0: Howdy, y'all.
1: <laughs> how you I doing? Believe,
0: how they would say it out here. Good. I'm good. How are you?
1: Not too bad. Do you hear a lot of howdies up there? Or, I mean, down there?
0: How, uh, I hear a lot more y'alls, um, oh. and I originally started, like, a long time ago, I kind of started saying it, like, ironically, like, oh, how silly is that? And then I got down here, and I was like, listen, it's an incredibly economic word, so I am <laughs> all for the y'all.
1: <laughs> uh, all Ah, right. That's the word of the week, y'all.
0: All right, y'all. Let's do it.
1: All right. Well, I've got a pretty fun one today, so...
0: Okay, let's hear it.
1: Let's jump right in. So I have Frank K. Barnes, number six, and my sources... Yeah, right? Oh, my gosh. Uh, The Idaho Statesman, Chronicling America, from Library of Congress, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, the research of Kathy Dinehart-Hill, who wrote the book Hanged, which you can come purchase in our gift shop. An Idaho State Historical Society reference series article on early Lemhi County, WesternMiningHistory.com article about Leesburg, Idaho. Reports of cases argued and determined in the Supreme Court of Territory of Idaho, Volume 2, by Saul Hasbrook, published in 1903. And a Wikipedia article on Sandin, British Columbia, and the reference I found on that page about Ghost Towns of British Columbia from ghost Town Pix with an com, and that's all about Sandin, British Columbia. So that'll come at the very end of the episode. So, as you have all heard from our director, Janet Gallimore, on previous episodes, 2021 marks the 140-year anniversary of the founding of the Idaho State Historical Society. Of course, we were just a territory during that founding. But, you know, since that day, since 1881, we've been dedicated to serving Idahoans and protecting Idaho's historical places, artifacts, and stories. And today, I am bringing you a unique Idaho story from a crime that occurred 140 years ago. 1881. So I'll be covering two men, but only one who made it to the Idaho Penitentiary. and That's number six, Frank K. Barnes. So I stumbled across this story on accident while digging through some newspapers, and it led to this fascinating story of murder, execution, and an amazing connection to Queen Victoria. Frank K. Barnes, I couldn't find very much about his early life. I'm reliably certain that I discovered him in the 1880 census, and he listed that he was a white male, 23 years old, working as a placer miner in Lemhi County, and he listed that his parents were both born in England, and he was born in Illinois, and this I kind of, I don't quite believe, but we'll get to that in the end. A year later, he would tell prison authorities that he was born in 1855, making him closer to about 26 years old, and you'll see why I'm certain that this was his census record in just a moment. So Lemhi County is in eastern central Idaho on the edge of the Frank Church Wilderness in Montana where the town Salmon is, which we discussed in the Word and Snook episodes.
0: And in the Fedora Crawford
1: Oh, yeah, definitely episode Fedora well. Crawfords. yeah. And it's the grounds of the Lemhi Shoshone and the area where Lewis and Clark crossed and met Sacagawea. And there are several old mining ghost towns that... In the 1880s, there were these bustling mining communities, and Frank was most likely at either Gilmore, which had silver and lead, or Leesburg. Now, Leesburg, I had to dig into this because was like, huh. It's got a fascinating story. Gold was found there in 1866, leading to nearly 7,000 miners flocking to the area in just a couple of years. And just in 1866, 40 buildings sprung up from blacksmiths to butcher shops and stables, and two camps appeared. One made up mostly of Northerners who called their camp Grantsville, and another made up of Southerners who named theirs Section Lee'sville. You can probably uh, guess the connection to uh, Ulysses yeah, I guess S. That Grant. Makes sense. Yeah, Robert E. Lee. So the Southerners obviously made up the majority, and the little ghost town still carries the name of the Confederate general. And it was designated on the National Register of Historic Places in 1975. So if you're Interested in checking something out this summer? Go go look at this ghost town. There's a great YouTube video of this this fella who just kind of travels around and goes to all these ghost towns and checks them out. And you can kind of explore it through his YouTube page too. So just check out Leesburg, Idaho on YouTube. Now, Frank, he's a placer miner in Idaho and he's decided to spend the winter of 1881 in Salt Lake City, Utah. A new railroad was constructed that ran through southeastern Idaho between 1878 and 1880 called the Utah and Northern Railroad, which reached Idaho Falls, which at that time was called Eagle Rock. Frank befriended this man named Michael Mooney, and there's one write-up from the Mlad City News from November 30th, 1881, in which the journalist visited the jail to interview Michael Mooney, who had this to say, quote, he was born in Australia and is 29 years of age, Come to this country in 1869 and has lived on the coast ever since that time, mostly in Washington Territory, Oregon, and British Columbia, and has followed mining. He came from Wasco County, Oregon a few months ago to the mines on Deadwood Creek, which we understand is in the Lemhi County. He and Barnes came through on horseback. At Crystal City, they sold their horses and came to Blackfoot mostly on foot and were intending to go to Utah for the winter. They remained in Blackfoot several days and in Battle Creek nearly a week. We're in Franklin only a few hours. So that's just kind of a little preparation for what's going to happen here.
0: Now, wait a minute. Yeah. Did you say he was born in Australia? Did yes. Did that source say he was born in Australia? Interesting. That's, okay. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. So that's Michael Mooney. That's not Frank Barnes, though.
0: Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. All right. So, so
1: Frank Barnes' partner that we will hear more about in just a moment was born in Australia, and then Frank was reportedly born in either in Illinois or in Whitechapel, England, in London. So October 27th, 1881, at around 10 p.m., Frank and Michael Mooney stop in Franklin, Idaho, near the southeast corner of the state. They had intentions of making a quick buck before they continued their journey. Now, Joel Hinckley and his wife lived and worked at the UNN Railroad Station. Joel was described as a very pleasant and boyish man, but there's a little tension between Joel and his in-laws, who didn't approve of their 15-year-old daughter marrying 20-year-old Joel. Reportedly, the woman that he, he married, the young young woman that he married, was the daughter of a polygamist who had three wives. So there may have been some nice. contention there as well. Yeah. This is on uh, October 27th, 1881. He is washing his hands in a basin when his wife hears footsteps outside their window. It's late at night. No one should be here. She asks him to open the curtain, and he sees these two figures coming around to the front door. The figures open the door, masked with cloth caps that cover their faces, and a pistol aimed straight at Joel's head. Throw up your hands, one shouted. Quote, which he promptly did, and at the same time, the pistol was discharged, killing Mr. Hinkley instantly. The ball took effect in the chin, passed through his throat at the left side, cutting his windpipe and breaking his neck. The murderers immediately fled. End quote. Mrs. Hinckley and a mail carrier ran into the room, which was, quote, no doubt a surprise to them, the murderers, and hastened their retreat. End quote. Mrs. Hinckley and the young mail carrier were so frightened by the scene that they had a difficult time giving a description about the murders to police. Michael and Frank, they headed northeast followed by Sheriff Homer and a posse of over 70 men bent on capturing them. A description of the men finally appeared in the Blackfoot Register on October 29th as the following, so two days later, quote, One is about six feet high, has on a little black fuzzy cap, brown overalls, heavy short overcoat, stoga boots, one turns over at the heel, smooth shaved, dark complexion, short hair, weights about 180 pounds. The other man is about five feet eight inches high, had on a short ducking coat, which fits tightly in brown overalls, stoga boots, dark chin whiskers about one inch, one half inch long, weight 155 to 160 pounds. The railroad company will give $1,000 reward for the capture of the murderer or murderers, end quote. So by most reports, Michael Mooney was the taller man and Frank was the shorter man. And this is really the only description of Frank Barnes that we have is from this frightened wife and mail carrier who barely briefly glimpsed them as they ran out the door. There's so much fervor to catch these two that at one point a train stopped at the station in Richmond and the train men spotted these two guys standing suspiciously off to the side of the train depot. They pulled their pistols out and shouted for these two to throw up their hands but instead the two men actually pulled out their pistols and started firing at the train, and this little shootout stopped after about eight shots were fired. And it was discovered that the two men were actually sent there to act as lookouts for the killers, and thought that they were being held up by the killers on the train. Um, okay. Right? Yeah. So there, everybody was pretty trigger trigger happy. Every, yeah, everyone's a bit on two. edge. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's a wonder that nobody got killed because. this guy he had a a hole in his jacket a bullet hole through his jacket uh one of the guards that were was at the depot and his hair caught on fire from the gunpowder so quite the scene (sighs) i also found a bunch of different reports of different what they called tramps who matched the description of these two being arrested all over the northwest and and questioned and lodged in jail and then released
0: now let me let me just um ask this real quick I noticed when you did sort of your reenactment, it seemed as if you put an accent on the voice that we heard. Was that something that the wife noticed? Or no, do it's we not. Okay. Because that would have been, I would imagine, if she had noticed that, to say he had an accent of some kind, that's actually going to narrow that search a lot. So, But that right? was just something yeah. that, because you sort of knew who did it, you just sort of added that in. Exactly. Which is fine. I love. I mean, I, I love a good Australian accent, mate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, after traveling a couple of days, they, uh, they head northeast through Gentile Valley, and they pass Soda Springs and decide they need to stop for food. And they spot this ranch situ- situated on the old Fort Hall Road where they stop. And Michael remained about 300 yards from the ranch while Frank approached and asked for something to eat. And the ranchman, his name was Clark Sagers... He actually gave what I believe was Frank. Some reports said it was Frank. Gave Frank some food and said that both men could stay at his house that night. But Frank refused and said that he had a dugout and some nice blankets about 300 yards from the house, and they were just going to stay there. So after Carl gives them this food, he waits a couple hours and decides, you know what, I'm going to go invite them together. So he goes and finds their dugout. And when he arrives, they didn't have any blankets, and uh, one of them said, Quote, to tell the truth, they were burnt up. <laughs> so they don't have blankets. They don't have anything. So Carl's like, all right, come on into my house. I'll have you over. And then early the next morning, while they were still asleep, Carl actually rode to the next ranch over where he found, quote, a jolly crowd, end quote, consisting of the sheriff's posse, who revealed that there was a reward for these two killers. And upon hearing the description, Carl told the men that he had them in his house, right at that moment. So they all quickly pack up their camps and they rush over. Quote, Officer Brown was the first to walk into the house and presenting his bulldog ordered the large man to throw up his bread hooks, which he did. Mr. Loveland followed Brown closely and covered his engine with a Colt patent, which was enough for the smaller man, for he at once raised his hands in a manner which indicated his desire to have them up in time. Hop the Hamer witnessed the take which is my new favorite word, take Asian. and had the ruffians attempted violence. Knowing the ability of the H's as marksmen, it is safe in saying the men would have been transformed into a sieve without an exertion. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many good newspaper write-ups about all of this.
0: I mean— I just was just going to say, could you translate that into sort of modern day English? Because I, frankly, am a little bit confused. <laughs> just, I mean, I love the way that these old newspapers are written and they're so lively. And, like, the adjectives they use are, are just amazing. But I do get a little lost with their, like, you know, writing style.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think that these are pretty uh, renowned in this area in southeastern Idaho, sheriffs and police officers. So... I think that there's some backstory to to Hop the Hamer, you know, and all these guys I think are well known to the readers and their ability as marksmen is pretty well known. But basically, this Officer Brown, he walks in with his gun right there on um, Michael Mooney and he throws up his hands and then Mr. Loveland follows in closely behind with his gun aimed at Frank Barnes. And both of them are are taken under arrest, essentially right then and there, without any violence or anything. Gotcha. So they they actually put Frank and Michael in separate wagons and head back to Oneida County to the jail. And they actually question them on the way there. And immediately, Frank begins confessing that it was all Michael's idea and that Michael had fired the pistol. He said they just wanted Mr. Hinkley to open the safe and that, quote, "...the pistol went off accidentally." And when he fell dead, they were horrified at the horrible crime they had committed and both precipitately fled. End quote. These quotes are from the Idaho City newspaper called the Idaho Semi-Weekly World, which ended the segment about the crime, talking about the likely hanging that would follow. Quote, one of these assassins suspended from the limb of a tree would have a good effect on the class. The breaking of one neck would in all probability put a stop to such bloody work. So the description of the duo from the Salt Lake Herald on November 6, 1881 is pretty interesting. Quote, the large man of the two gives the name of Michael Mooney and is a hard-hearted bad man and would not give in at all or flinch on hearing the awful accusations made to him at the examination. The smaller is not as bad a man and lacks the nerve to carry him through, end quote. Michael Mooney denied all guilt and basically remained completely silent. And when he was arrested, he had the pistol on him. Sheriff Brown actually tinkered with this pistol, and he did note that it was faulty. It couldn't remain cocked. He said, quote, it was all right when half cocked, but when cocked full would go off. They didn't intend to kill this man. The gun actually went off on accident. So the trial begins at the end of November, and the newspaper said that it had the most attendance of any case up to that time. Both men actually pled not guilty originally, assuring this show in the courtroom, and Judge Morgan, he appointed an attorney named H.M. Bennett to defend the two men. They were given separate trials, and the trial began on November 21st, 1881. And an interesting tidbit, one of the jurors was actually removed uh, when it was found that he was deaf on the first date.
0: Wait, he was deaf. Yeah. I don't. I guess how did, like, how did he get through the pickings? Like, you know that's, what I mean? Like that was original... my thought too.
1: Yeah, I don't huh? know. I was like, what? That you know, that's such an interesting little thing that, like. I mean, unless how? it's easy, like
0: he could have. <laughs> If he could read lips, because I know that a lot of deaf people are able to read lips, where because they were standing right in front of him, he could answer the questions without having hearing it. And then when that person is no longer, you know, when the person's in the the stand or whatever, like you can't read those lips as well. So he Mm -hmm. probably was like, sorry, what's going on? Right. Yeah.
1: So the defense, they tried to persuade the jury that Frank and Michael obviously never intended to kill Joel Hinckley because the safe that they were trying to rob was a combination safe and only Joel could have accessed it. Killing him meant that they wouldn't gain access. So when Frank was brought up after Michael's trial, he changed his plea to guilty, knowing full well that it could cost him his life. Two days later, the trial ended with their convictions, and Michael, who wielded the gun, was handed a charge of murder in the first degree. This is, of course, uh, because of Idaho's felony murder law. His lawyer immediately applied for a new trial, but the judge ruled that the first trial and verdict, quote, was a proper one and, indeed, the only one which the jury ought to have rendered. The court believes that the defendant has not made a true statement of the facts in the case, end quote. And the Supreme Court opinion later on would state, quote, It is the policy of the law to hold persons engaged in felonies or attempts to commit felonies responsible for all the consequences of their felonious act, whether such consequences were definitely intended or not. The intent to commit felonies standing in the place of malice in ordinary cases of murder, end quote. So Michael Mooney is actually condemned to hang on January 20th, 1882. Frank was led into the courtroom after Michael's trial, and the judge said, quote, I have adjudged you guilty of murder in the second degree. Your confessions, wrung from you by remorse, have led to your conviction and to the conviction of the other defendant. I believe the main actor has been sentenced already, End quote. He gave Frank Barnes 15 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary on a charge of murder in the second degree. So Michael appealed the case several times, writing to the governor of the territory for clemency, and his execution date was actually moved from January 20th to December 29th, 1882. One report said that he had, on three separate occasions, nearly sawed through his shackles to make an escape, but was foiled each time when he was caught in the act. Michael sat in the jail in Malad City until December 29th when his execution came. It was reported that he slept well the night before, and the morning of, he took a bath at 11 a.m., put on a black suit with a fine linen shirt, and shaved. At noon, he sat with his attorney, who attempted to gain a last-minute commutation with authorities, while Michael Mooney, quote, sat and looked constantly and steadfastly at his scaffold, which immediately faced him. Solemn, indeed, must have been his feelings, with all the paraphernalia of his death and funeral staring him in the face, end quote there were two to 300 men and boys actually hanging off and sitting on top of the fence that surrounded the jail yard to witness this hanging. And the sheriff had to tell them to all scatter, and it just leaving the 20 authorities in the yard to witness the event. But one newspaper actually reported that they climbed a nearby haystack. All of these men who wanted to witness this climbed this haystack to see into the jail yard. They had this end quote, how strange is human curiosity to witness the death agonies of a brother man, end quote. Snow started to fall mm-hmm. at about 1.30 p.m. as Sheriff Homer read the death sentence to Michael. He asked him if he would have anything to say on the scaffold, and Michael said, quote, Nothing. It would not do anyone any good. At 1.50 p.m., Michael was led to the scaffold, showing little weakness, and he said to the sheriff, Homer, God damn you. Don't get excited over this thing. Do it right. He then said goodbye to the others in the prison yard before saying, Homer, do this as quick as Christ will let you, if there is any Christ. I don't care any more for dying than I would for going to a dance. He was tied up, and a hood was placed over his face. His last words were at the undersheriff, Benjamin Evans. Quote, goodbye, Benny, and thanks for your kindness to me in jail. At 1.58 p.m., The trap was drawn, and Michael Mooney's body, quote, swung between the heavens and the earth. A few short movements of the body was all, and in ten minutes, he was pronounced dead by the attending physician and lowered into his coffin.
0: Huh. Wow.
1: And it's unclear where Michael was buried, but local lore in Malad says he was taken to Two Mile Canyon, which is two miles south and east of Malad.
0: Now, let me ask this. Um, I, I mean, I think I know the answer, but now, we do not, in terms of the penitentiary, he is not listed amongst the executions that happened sort of in terms of the Idaho State Penitentiary. Now, why is that? Because, he, I mean, he clearly was executed in the state of Idaho by sort of the same authorities that would have had jurisdiction over the penitentiary.
1: Yeah, so 1900, they actually designate that all hangings taken place at the penitentiary. And so we only have the nine, starting with Ed Rice and ending with Raymond Snowden, that were here because law dictated that all executions occur here. Prior to that, they were all done on the county level, and Tom Biago was the 10th. He was the very first one that was here at the institution, but that was just because he was incarcerated here, and this is where they— decided to host that execution
0: so then i guess the other question is why was moody being kept at the Milad city jail rather than at the penitentiary
1: the executions took place at the county level instead of the state I got you. like
0: okay.
1: territorial level yeah they basically kept him there in that jail and they actually some descriptions said that he was never allowed outside of his cell and he just remained shackled and when they saw him he was just like a withered man and just so pale and pasty because he had he wasn't allowed outside or anything like that Hmm. yeah it wasn't until 1900 that it was part of you know idaho law that all executions be done at the state level and not on the county level so now back to frank this is kind of a twofer episode here He's taken to the penitentiary by U.S. Marshal Robbins, and he arrived on December 12, 1881 with the sentence of 15 years for the murder in the second degree. His prison file only consists of three sheets of paper concerning his release from the institution. So the closest thing to a Bertillon was the newspaper description from above that, uh, quote, the other man is about five feet, eight inches high. And had on a short ducking coat, which fits tightly, and a brown overall, Stoga boots, dark chin whiskers, about one half inch long, and weighs between 155 and 160 pounds. And I looked up Stoga boots. That's kind of like a uh, uh, cowboy boot. So I only know about his... His incarceration from an article from the Wood River Times in Haley, Idaho from June 24, 1891, after his release, titled The Queen and the Convict, and it reveals that his nickname was actually Frenchie, which was a common nickname for foreigners in the institution in the early days. It states, quote, For a number of years, Frenchie was cook in the prison, and to be solid with the cook was more to a hungry con in those territorial days than a pole with an officer. In justice to both Frenchy and France, it may be well to say that our hero was no Frenchman, but a cockney of the most pronounced type, having been born and raised in Whitechapel, London, a locality since made famous by Jack the Ripper's numerous and successful surgical operations. Oy. Yeah. Ugh. It's like the. Ugh. This.
0: <laughs> That's not. I'm sure Whitechapel wants to be known for more than that. Ugh. <laughs> uh, right. So.
1: Yeah, and Jack the Ripper was like 1888, so just a couple yeah. years prior to this. So it it Which was is so pretty...
0: crazy to think though because Jack the Ripper seems so long ago and like so far removed that like we never figured it out and like forensic science wasn't a thing and you know like we just never caught him because of all these reasons. And then it's crazy to be talking about something that's happening just a few years later mm-hmm. that seems because we know the site and because like, you know, we have these records of who these people were that sorry that it's like it's like finding out that like Anne Frank and um, there's like another really famous person who's still alive. We're like born in the same age and it like blows oh, yeah. your mind or like those like time where like Cleopatra is actually born closer to the invention of the iPhone than to the building of the pyramids. Like these <sighs> concepts of time and the way that these myths exist in our heads mm-hmm. are like, it's so, oh, that's so interesting. Sorry. Okay.
1: Oh, no, I'm with you. Absolutely. Got to spend a semester in London and, you know, take a Jack the Ripper tour, which was frightening and fascinating. So, 1887 that is the golden jubilee of Queen Victoria. So, it's her 50 year anniversary of her accession to the throne, which was on June 20th, 1837. And this day was marked with celebrations across the British Empire for the queen, and gifts arrived to celebrate her from across the world. And I found a bunch of different articles with differing views on the queen, one from the Idaho City uh, newspaper, the Idaho Semi-Weekly World, from February 25, 1887, that stated that as part of the Jubilee, Queen Victoria, quote, "...has done a graceful act by the subject of her Indian empire." Recently, 75,000 prisoners confined in the jails of India were liberated. In addition, all persons imprisoned for debt were liberated, the government assuming the obligation of the debtors. It's like, what? I've never heard of this. That's fascinating. And, you know, I can, I can imagine if Frank got word of this, if, if this news reached him, maybe he'd be like, huh, I'm a British subject. In one article in the Idaho Statesman, <laughs> march 1887 it notes that quote queen victoria has declined to accept a jubilee cheese made from the milk of 5800 canadian cows <laughs> hmm. uh, <laughs> there's no other explanation i couldn't find any follow-up to this well, story. but those
0: poor canadians were probably like this is going to be such a good gift and she was like "Ooh, <laughs> hard pass thank you so much what a bummer yeah.
1: Maybe she was gassy with cheese. I don't know. <laughs> a couple of days later, uh, another little blurb in the Statesman notes, quote, Queen Victoria acknowledges through her secretary every poem sent to her. She never reads them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a nice gift she received at the end of March was, quote, a bright yellow Dresden ware from the German emperor. It is profusely ornamented with medallion pictures of notable events and portraits of famous persons of her reign. It will contain in all 480 pieces, end quote. So it's a pretty common practice to send gifts during these jubilees. And Frank Barnes decides to take part from his little place in Idaho in his cell. Uh, So continuing from the Wood River Times article from June 24, 1891, I'm basically going to read the second half of it. Like many other Englishmen, and Americans too for that matter, Frenchie went his pile on titled idiots and blew in his reserve fund of adoration on her royal majesty, Queen Victoria, his particular dementia being pretty well known, the Queen's Jubilee year 87 opened up an unlimited pie prospect for the one who could strike a royal lead with its dips, spurs, and angles properly defined, and who could furnish the mental muscle necessary to do the assessment work. Such a lead was struck and worked to the queen's taste and that of the discoverer. In due season, the claim, Frank Barnes, turned out a riding whip made of horsehair, colored red, white, and blue with the initials VR worked into the handle and surmounted by a crown. This production was boxed up and shipped to her royal majesty, Queen Victoria Osborne Castle, Isle of Wight, GB, where her royal giblets was then residing. <laughs> Accompanying this horse and man persuader was a letter entreating the royal dame to, quote, graciously accept this tribute from a loyal subject who, though a wanderer amongst cutthroats and savages in the wilds of Idaho, was still true to his queen and country, end quote. He furthermore stated that the hair of which the whip was made, quote, was cut from the mane of his favorite riding horse, end quote, but was knightly delicacy suppressed the fact of his being immersed in the mulgatani, and gave his address under care of the gentleman, then warden of the penitentiary. So basically saying, this is under the care of this man. I'm not saying that I'm a prisoner or anything. <laughs> Continuing on, in due time, an answer was received from Sir Henry Ponzibe, Her Majesty's private secretary, with the royal coat of arms emblazoned on paper and envelope. It was dated at Osborne Palace and was a model of calm and rigid penmanship. Sir Henry stated that by command of Her Gracious Majesty, he begged to acknowledge receipt of the very handsome whip sent by her loyal subject in Idaho, that his gracious mistress was pleased with it, and that it would be placed with the other public... Contributions, and that he had the honor to remain, etc. That was all, and it was enough, too, for many other loyal subjects who pay more dearly for their whistle than Frenchie. So the pay streak petered out after yielding a handsome dividend, and everyone was satisfied, but none more so than Frenchie, who declared that his royal letter was sufficient warrant for his assuming the title Whipmaker to Her Majesty. <laughs> And that is the end of this newspaper article and this is actually the very first thing I found it was this I was like who is this Frenchie and then I uncovered this whole story about this execution and everything else Frank sends this whip to Queen Victoria and receives this response after the release. He had actually filed a petition for pardon two years after the Jubilee on June 5th, 1889, and on June 15th, he was given a hearing, and the governor, George Soup, he denied the request of the pardon based on the advice of the prosecuting attorney who thought Frank's sentence was exceedingly light. Uh, The warden, however, saw that Frank was not—he wasn't a danger to society. He lacked any write-ups or infractions, and he actually approved Frank's release a year later. And he was released September 12th, 1890. The letter from Henry Ponsonby arrived after his release. And so the warden somehow tracked Frank down and gave him the letter and the news. And you can only imagine, like, how this miner who's been in prison for about 10 years running around saying, everybody, I'm the whipmaker to Her Majesty. I can just imagine. <laughs> that's probably how he opened up every story just like well you don't know <laughs> yeah, who you're gonna, talking that about that or
0: like that or everyone in the prison was like oh my shut up about being the okay well, yes wh- yeah i've heard yes no i know <laughs> like i get it mr whitmaker i, it, yeah.
1: <laughs> I actually reached out to the uh, royal collection trust that has all of the artifacts from queen victoria and they they didn't have it in their uh collection so i'm not i'm not positive what happens to frank after his release there were a handful of write-ups that i think may have been him but i'll never know for sure so i found a frank barnes who headed north and purchased timberland near priest lake in bonner county near the idaho canada border and this frank barnes was working as a miner under a a man named h gunmayer if this is the right Frank Barnes, he died January 22, 1900, in a serious dynamite explosion. So, according to the Spokesman Review for Spokane, Washington, printed January 25, 1900, quote, Marston and Barnes, after putting in a round of holes in the shaft, came up to thaw powder for the blast. They heated a can of water, placed another vessel containing the dynamite into it, and set the can at one side of the tool shop to thaw, while they sharpened steel for the afternoon shift. Barnes had just heated the drill and turned around to the anvil, and Marston, sledgehammer in hand, was about to strike when the explosion took place. The can containing the powder was blown into fragments, and fine pieces of tin were blown into Barnes's body, killing him instantly. Marston's eyes were badly burned by the flash, the powder being not more than six feet from either of the men. And then the last paragraph says, quote, Barnes' remains were brought to Priest River and buried from the Catholic Church. Deceased came to this place about thirteen months ago from Missoula. He was a man of quiet disposition. Little is known of his past. He claimed to have joined the Catholic Knights of in British Columbia, at one time, but had let his dues become delinquent. In appearance, Barnes was a good looking man, about thirty six years old, six feet tall, weighed about a hundred and seventy pounds, regular features, dark brown beard, and blue eyes. So this Frank Barnes, he seems both slightly taller and about 10 years younger than ours. Mm-hmm. But with Frank Barnes' history in mining, I can only, you know, speculate that maybe this is him. Uh, well, that was- and
0: also, like, the way that, like, sort of people, like, newspapers told people's story. Like, mm-hmm. newspapers weren't quite as committed to the truth or, like also the possibility that he himself lied about where he came from and right, you know like I feel like if I were just an itinerant minor I would just like everywhere I go just like make up a new story about myself just because <laughs> that would be fun
1: yeah and we I mean from the beginning I, I don't know if that was his real name he also said he was born in Illinois to uh, two British parents so it's uh, there's so much mystery because we didn't have the records at that time but uh, I, I started digging because I was like, okay, Sandin, I better look into this. It's this the city in British Columbia that had a, which is in Canada, they had the silver mine discovery in 1891. So that's not long after Frank's release from prison, which may have driven him there. And it was this like wild mining town full of saloons and casinos in its heyday. And it was the richest silver mine in British Columbia at the time. And while in the town, he could have joined the local order of Catholic Knights, this, like, civic fraternal organization in the city. In 1900, most of the town had actually burned down in a fire, and despite this rapid rebuild, you know, that town actually waned and and slowly descended. Now it's it's one of the most famous ghost towns in western Canada. But just thinking of him as this, like, itinerant miner, he's just out of prison, and he hears that there's this major silver strike just across the border— I I could see him going there and you know chasing this thrill and uh and trying to do that and then you know getting in line with some guys who want to buy some timberland in Priest Lake and mine there and then find his untimely death you know as a miner in a camp you know just before he's going to blast some stone so this this is Frank Barnes number 6 whipmaker to her majesty and one of the most unique Idaho stories I've come across since I've been working at the old pen.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is really interesting. Super cool.
1: I had so much fun researching it, but it's again, it's like ah, oh, so many mysteries. I wish I I wish I could find the <laughs> the truth.
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, trust me. I just got done with so re- I told you about this lady, but I just got done researching a woman I don't know. I don't know anything about her, really, so we'll see how that episode goes. <laughs> so I understand. It's frustrating. It These super is. early ones are just so hard.
1: To learn more about the Old Idaho Penitentiary, please follow Old Idaho Penitentiary on Facebook and Instagram. There you can buy tickets for entry, find updates about events, the online gift shop, and other exciting things about the site. If you'd like to know more about the Idaho State Historical Society and other historical sites, please visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for Sky or I, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. Starting this year, we have a new way for listeners to get involved and support what we do through a sponsorship program. Sponsors will receive a 30-second feature at the beginning of each episode Acknowledgements with logos on social media promotions by the Old Pen and ISHS, on the Behind Gray Walls Facebook group page, Instagram, and on the Behind Gray Walls webpage. If you or any business owners you know are interested, send an email to anthony.perry at ishs.idaho.gov. All right, Sky. Well, who do you have
0: for us today? Excellent. Okay, so mine is less fun, but I think, I feel like my opinion about her changed a little bit after doing this research. So there may be sort of a a gut reaction at the beginning, but I think hopefully by the end there's a little bit more sympathy than complete outrage. So with that said, I am going to be talking about number 3834, Margaret Brooks. So the way that anthony i feel like once described her and is quite apt is that she's she's very young um and she has these round glasses on and she kind of the way her hair is done she comes in in the late 20s i think he called her like a hipster kind of a (laughs) hipster looking girl um, which is true. And uh, so, you know, definitely check that out on our Facebook and our Instagram. But uh, she's she's very interesting. So sources and we'll get into her story. Inmate File, uh, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com records, newspapers.com articles, SandpointIdaho.gov. Kalispell um an article called Early Sandpoint Hangtown by Bob Gunter on Sandpoint.com, Daughters of the Nile.com, Easternstar.org, and a few sources that I got through Wikipedia. So, Margaret Brooks was born on May 31st, 1906, in Acorn, Tennessee, which is about 50 miles south of Knoxville, to John Joby Brooks and Joanna Bright Brooks. Margaret was the third of five kids. She had an older brother, Charles, who was eight years older, an older sister, Blanche, who was five years older, a younger brother, Asa, three years younger, and a younger brother, Thomas, who was nine years younger. So kind of a full uh, spectrum uh, in there. She's right kind of smack dab in the middle. So her father, John, was a farmer. And between 1916 and 1920, um, the family moved from Acorn, Tennessee to St. Ignatius, Montana. And St. Ignatius is on the Flathead Indian Reservation, about 45 miles north of Missoula. And this, for the most part, is where Margaret grows up, especially her adolescent years. If uh, She would have been between about 10 and 14 when they moved. So, you know, kind of the most... 10 is probably a good time to move, but by the time you're in your teens, um, that's that's a tough move. Um, while in St. Ignatius, probably at school, but we're not totally sure, Margaret comes into contact with a young man named Gaspard Thomas Trahan. Now, Gaspard was the son of a French-Canadian farmer who was born in Frenchtown, Montana, and I'll give you one guess as to who founded that town, um, and French town is about 40 miles southwest of St. Ignatius and Gaspard was about two years older than her but they would have been you know teenagers Mm -hmm. Um, and they strike up a relationship now perhaps it was young love perhaps it was something else we don't really know the circumstances what we do know is probably around November or December 1926 Margaret probably found out that she was pregnant And by this time, she's about 20 years old. So rural society, which definitely is St. Ignatius, Montana, um, probably would not have taken too well to an unmarried young woman having a baby. And so she moved out to Spokane to live with her sister Blanche and her brother-in-law Clyde Fitz, sort of while she was pregnant, and to have the baby. And unfortunately, this is a pretty common practice um, to sort of protect... Her reputation to protect her family's reputation. I actually, this even continued into modern day. Um, I have a friend who he found out in his teenage years that his mother um, had gotten pregnant uh, out of marriage and came from a very conservative family and was actually forced to, to have the baby elsewhere and come back and sort of pretend like nothing had ever happened. So this is a pretty common practice. Mm -hmm. so on august 11th 1927 margaret gives birth to a baby boy Um, now according to a newspaper article from the spokesman review which is from spokane on september 21st 1927 margaret first gave her name her real name when checking into the sacred heart hospital but later tried to give a different name um so there's sort of some confusion as to her identity for like a little bit but Because she checked in under Margaret Brooks, the hospital was like, "Mm, but it says here your name is Margaret Brooks. Like, why are you telling us it's your other name? Um, And so because she checked in under that first name, the attending physician who took care of her knew her as Margaret Brooks rather than as sort of this fake name that she tried to give. I could not find the birth records of Margaret and her son. I don't know if it's because she tried to change her name or if that just isn't available to me and and what I'm able to access. Mm -hmm. So um, two weeks later, her son's about two weeks old. Margaret decides it's time to head home and she buys a ticket for Sandpoint, Idaho to start the journey. So we're going to pause here, build the tension a little bit. (laughs) So, Let's talk about Sandpoint a little bit. I've actually, I didn't know about Sandpoint. So this was a a really interesting dive for me. So prior to European settlement, Sandpoint was part of the home of the Kalispell native peoples. Kalispell land stretched from Lake Ponderé in north Idaho to the area of Paradise, Montana, and then northwest across um, northeastern Washington to the mouth of the Salmon River in modern day British Columbia, Canada. And of course, the tribes themselves would not have seen the area as, you know, those names, but that's sort of present day. Eventually, the Northwest Company fur trader, David Thompson, was one of the first white settlers in the area to establish a relationship with tribes, and he established fur trading in the area in 1909. The North- Northern Pacific Railroad Surveyors established a railroad in 1880, and so that started to sort of attract permanent settlers, but the communities were really small. Um, there would have been a little bit of mining around, and then the railroad's going to bring in lots of you know, he established a fur trading you know, post in the area Thompson did, but there probably would have been some fur trading kind of about as well. Um, so a tiny community named Pondere popped up on the east side of Sand Creek, which is just opposite of sort, sort of the current Sand Point city, I guess. And uh, so this is around 1880, and and a general store was established by a man named Robert Weeks. And so the population begins to grow with this general store, with this tiny community of Pondere. And then in 1882, the Northern Pacific Railroad built a track between Montana and Pondere. And so, um, over the next decade, as things got bigger and sort of started to spill over, the settlement was renamed Sand Point. Uh, in 1892, the Great Northern Railroad arrived in is what is now Bonner County, or uh, where Sandpoint is, and there were two railroad agents, L.D. Farman and his wife, Ellen, and they helped found Sandpoint City in 1896. And so we get a lot of European settlers coming, and then the Chinese start to settle in the area um, because of the, their role in railroad construction as, as the railroads are moving west. Forest and mining in the area helped attract settlers, so timber became a m- main industry in Sandpoint and Kootenai, and then farming, again, was also a major industry as they cleared timber off of that forest land. The village of Sandpoint was incorporated on February 7th, 1901 by the Kootenai County Board of Commissioners, and the reason it was the Kootenai County is because what is now Bonner County and Boundary Counties were all part of Kootenai at one time. We talked about sort of that confusion of In last week's episode, actually. So we know how those counties kind of got made. Um, So then six years later, on January 15th, 1907, the village of Sandpoint became the city of Sandpoint. And then in February 1907, so just a month later, the portion of Kootenai County that had Sandpoint in it became Bonner County. So within a month of becoming a city, they are now part of this new county as well. Now, I found a really interesting article on Sandpoint.com that gives sort of an idea of the town in the early years. A once Sandpoint mayor named Fred B. Reed stated in an interview from 1964, quote, I was through here with the Northern Pacific Construction Gang in 1880 and Sandpoint was the toughest place in the United States, end quote. In this same article, there's kind of all these stories about how sort of like rough and tumble Sandpoint really was, the toughest place in the United States, which I didn't... Sandpoint just seems real, I don't know, not blasé, but like I just don't hear about Sandpoint much anymore, and especially not as this reputation of like this tough place. So there's a story that in 1906, a worker was digging a ditch for a water main and found four skeletons. All these skeletons were originally believed to be bodies of natives because the area had once been known as an Indian burial ground. But it was eventually learned that the bodies were buried there as a result of bloodshed during the construction of the Northern Pacific Railroad. They, you know, each of the skeletons were found inside a coffin and then one of the bodies, they found red hair in the coffin and so they knew it couldn't have been native. So it turns out because of this construction Of the railroad. So it turns out that one man, one body was a man who went into a local saloon and died suddenly of an illness. Weird. Two bodies were lovers who quarreled, and the woman shot the man and then killed herself, but with an overdose of whiskey and morphine. And then the last man was shot through the heart during a gambling argument. So Sandpoint was was a bit of the Wild West in the 1880s, which I really did not know. So, you know, Sandpoint kind of builds a little bit. It gets a lot of attention in the 1980s and 1990s when Sandpoint and nearby northern Idaho areas got some bad publicity because uh, white supremacy, neo-Nazi groups, especially the Aryan Nation, set up headquarters in the area. And unfortunately, it's kind of what it's known for today, though. um, The uh, citizens of Bonner County and uh, Sandpoint really try to work against this because some Sandpoint residents formed the Bonner County Human Rights Task Force in opposition to the Aryan Nations. And the Aryan Nations actually tried to file a, file a lawsuit against the BCHRTF in 2001 and the Aryan Nations lost. And so this loss bankrupt the organization and they were forced to disband. So uh, again, you know, the Sandpoint residents were not having it and so we're able to sort of force those groups a bit more underground. And so On December 2011, Sandpoint became the first city in Idaho to pass an ordinance prohibiting discrimination in housing, employment, and public accommodations based on sexual orientation or gender identity, which I didn't know. Mm. um yeah i didn't know that and then sandpoint is also home to idaho's largest ski resort called the schweitzer mountain resort so the resort is actually on the shores of lake Ponderay, and it's surrounded by three mountain ranges selkirk cabinet and Bitterroot. so if you like to ski head on up there Mm -hmm. i don't ski and i because we live so far down south most people in the boise area don't ever talk about schweitzer but seems like that might be a pretty fun place to go And then in 2011, Sandpoint was named the most beautiful small town by Rand McNally and USA Today. So I got to give Sandpoint credit where it's due. I just didn't know anything about them. The population in 2010 was 7,365 and the 2018 estimate is 8,931. So it is still a pretty small town despite having the, the ski resort there. And so, you know, still pretty small, but seems pretty picturesque. So that is Sandpoint. Let's get back to Margaret and why Margaret is in Sandpoint in the first place. So on September 16th, 1927, she's on her way home to St. Ignatius on the train passing through Sandpoint. Now witnesses see her board the train at a small station and she's got a bundle wrapped in paper in her arms. When she gets off at the next station, she is no longer carrying that bundle. Soon after the train passes through the area, officials find the body of an infant on the tracks near Granite, Idaho, and that's about 20 miles outside of Sand Point. But of course, you know, the police don't know what's happened, and so the train continues moving, and Margaret arrives home in St. Ignatius. I'm not sure of the details, but soon after, she checks into a local hospital, quote, suffering from a nervous breakdown, unquote. And so officials begin investigating the death of this baby. One woman says she saw a girl answering Margaret's description get on the train with a bundle, and the station master agreed that he also saw that corroborated the story. And so soon this is traced back to Margaret in St. Ignatius. So when officials ask her about the baby, she originally denies that the baby is hers. But they find the records from the hospital where the baby was born, and that's when she admits, yes, it was her baby, and that she had indeed thrown it from the window while the train was moving. Originally, officials wondered if the baby had been poisoned before being thrown from the train, but the coroner determined the death was a result of being thrown from the train and exposure. So that's pretty brutal. Uh
1: (laughs) Oh, so heartbreaking. Yeah, so
0: this is this is sort of the point that I was like, I don't like her. She's this hipster girl who just, you know, didn't want to deal with the consequences of her actions. Yeah. Um so she again, she admits to it, the sheriff of Montana holds Margaret until she could be extradited to Idaho. Now, on September 21st, so that is uh, about 5 days after she had passed through and the, the baby was found authorities in montana actually arrest gaspar trahan on a charge of transporting liquor now this is 1927 so this is the middle of prohibition on gaspard's person they actually find correspondence from margaret saying that he was the father of the baby he denies this accusation but it's hard to deny the accusation when it's sort of written in black and white but That's all I could actually find about sort of Gaspard um, and his any sort of culpability. And in fact, I wouldn't have even known about that, except it was in a newspaper article that I found on newspapers. So this wasn't available to me when I originally wrote her biography for the book. So that's all we kind of know about Gaspard is that he's, you know, Margaret at least says he's the father so a month later, on October 17th, 1927, Margaret is arraigned before the court and she pleaded guilty to a crime of manslaughter. And she is sentenced to one to 10 years uh, for this crime. The prosecuting attorney, Sidney Smith, seemed understanding of the distress that Margaret had been under. He says, quote, Undoubtedly, the crime was committed on the spur of the moment as a result of the extremity of her condition. In my letter, I also went into the fact of her physical condition and urged upon your giving special attention to her care in this respect, and also urged that you give her any special attention which might help her in the future years, end quote. And upon sentencing, Smith also recommends that she be released after just one year as long as her behavior is good. So, you know, the prosecuting attorneys, sometimes they can be lenient. Sometimes they just are straight up like this is a horrible person. They don't deserve any leniency, Um, likely because of her youth and likely because of sort of this mental breakdown. He was willing to say she clearly is showing remorse for this. She shouldn't be kept in any longer than she needs to be. But she still has to serve time, so she enters the Idaho State Penitentiary on November 13th, 1927. Now, that's almost a full month after she's sentenced. She was sentenced on October uh, 17th. She doesn't head in until November 13th. And the reason it took so long is because the guards at the Idaho State Penitentiary were busy. And it actually took time before one of them could come to Montana to get her. Um, They actually let her return to Montana to be with her family until she went into the penitentiary. So just took some time to get someone there. So her intake form. So she is 20 years old when she first comes in, born in 1907 and born in Montana. She lists her occupation as a waitress. Her hair is black. She has a medium to light complexion, weight 93 pounds, build slender, color white. Residence is in Montana. She is single, listed as single rather than married. Her English height is uh, 62 inches. That's five foot two, if I can do my math correctly um well interestingly so it says on one that she's uh, 62 inches i have her height listed on a different because there were sometimes there's two intake forms yeah uh it says that her height is four nine so she's petite she's very little and then her eye color is listed as blue gray it does say in terms of teeth it says she has fair teeth and they are prominent (laughs) um And then her chin says, actually, that she has a small cleft chin. So it's she apparently is still suffering from a very bad case of venereal disease or gonorrhea when she enters. There are only two other women in the penitentiary when she enters. One of them is Lyda Southard. The other one is Mary Crumroy. This is actually a technicality because when she comes in, Mary, Mary Crumroy days before had set fire to the women's ward for a second time and so this particular date she's in saint alphonsus so if i recall correctly she comes back for a couple more days and then she's sent to blackfoot so basically when margaret goes in it's her and lida like
1: and all the furniture is still charred out in in the yard
0: yeah wow um so while she's in there, she's eventually joined by Jeanette Benoit, in for manslaughter and Ella Muguerza, who's in for assault with a deadly weapon. So Margaret is incredibly well behaved while her while staying at the pen. And so when her one year, when her minimum sentence is up on October 24th, 1928, Sidney Smith, who again is that prosecuting attorney, wrote Warden Wheeler. Quote, my idea in writing at this time is to reaffirm my views expressed at that time, and that time being her arraignment, and if Margaret Brooks's record at the penitentiary has been satisfactory, I would urge you that you do all you can to help her and the family along, as I still think that would best serve the ends of justice, end quote. So Warden Wheeler writes back a few days later and he says, "Quote, In answer to your letter, Margaret Brooks was received at the penitentiary under a sentence of 1 year so that she would have been discharged with usual statutory good time allowance deducted on October 13th, 1928. Unfortunately, the Attorney General's office holds that her sentence would be 1 to 10 years, and so the Board of Pardons and Paroles will have to take action on her case before she can be released, and in view of her having a stubborn venereal disease which has thus far not responded to treatment, it" has Perhaps better for her to remain with us where she can have good medical treatment until such time as the disease is cleared up, and then she can re enter life without having the handicap of a serious disease. End quote. Huh. Now, Margaret isn't privy to these letters and she obviously is getting a little frustrated so a few weeks later Margaret actually writes the governor H.C. Baldridge and she says quote my year with the statutory good time allowance ended on October 13th 1928 and I was not released on account of the judge erring in pronouncing sentence for I am informed that under the law the that that portion of the judgment fixing any other different terms than is fixed by section 8215 is surplusage, and I really have a sentence of from one to ten years, and, in view of this misunderstanding, I should like to ask for a reprieve until such time as I can either be paroled or pardoned, and I believe that your excellency will find upon investigation that it was the sense of the court that I really serve one year, and that in view of this fact, I know you will not let a technicality stand in the way of justice." As to my conduct and behavior, I respectfully refer to the matron and warden. So basically what she's saying is, you know, I, I had a basically a one year sentence, but the judge actually, you know, he gave sort of the minimum of sentence, which is ma- for manslaughter, which is one to 10 years. And that the fact that he sort of tacked on that one to 10 years, that's extra and that I really served my time. And so, yeah. you know, is was asking that until she gets a pardon, can I at least have a reprieve so I can go home? She doesn't really seem to get an answer, so she writes a couple months later, on December 22, 1928, she writes, While here I am adhering strictly to the rules, and at the time I was sentenced, the understanding between the judge and the prosecutor was that I should serve only one year, provided my behavior entitled consideration. But through an error, the judge made a passing sentence, I was placed under a one to ten year sentence, so I have now served my minimum sentence. And as my crime was committed while I was driving nearly crazy with distraction, I ask that your honorable body grant my liberty and let me return home to my parents in Montana. End quote. Hmm. So, you know, she is desperate to get out, and I don't blame her. So soon she gets her wish, and on January 5th, 1929, she is granted a full pardon and released on January 8th to return to her family, namely her mother and brothers in Montana. So she served one year, one month, and 26 days on a one-to-ten-year sentence for manslaughter. Wow. So within the next six months, she actually moves back to Spokane to live with her sister. And while in Spokane, she meets a man named Clint James Gold. And Clint is the third of four sons born to a Kansas motorman. Clint was born and raised in Washington. He's actually two years her junior. And he worked as a chemist for the Pine Creek Dairy. So they get to be good friends. And Margaret and Clint actually marry on July 9th, 1929 in Spokane. So, again, she's released on January 5th. They're married by July 9th. So that's... You know, and, six and she's
1: still like, yeah, she's she's fled kind of her her parents, mm-hmm. and oh man, just to like help their reputation, you think maybe
0: that or she is um, at this point she's uh, twenty three years old, and as a twenty three year old, you kind of don't want to live with your parents too much longer than you have to, right. and you know, Spokane, you can go. I feel like living with. Because, you know, I feel like if her mother and brothers, I think her father had died at this point, but I can't mm. remember. He may They may have been divorced and I did not write that down for some reason. I feel like if they weren't willing to have her come back, they would have just had her sister take her from the beginning. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's more just like, I want to go be on my own and this is the way I know how to do it. So i, I that seems more to me what happened more than like, well, we don't want you around because you're, you know, ruining our family's reputation.
1: Gotcha, yeah. yeah.
0: So interestingly, on the marriage certificate and the following censuses, um, Margaret actually claims that they were both born in the same year. But from the the I think it's the birth record that I found of him, he is two years younger so after their marriage they actually honeymooned to saint ignatius montana to visit her mother according and that's according to the missoulian which is a newspaper from missoula montana i hope they also went somewhere else um i don't imagine like a honeymoon (laughs) to your parents place is like real romantic but um so again that i feel that that is an indication that she seems to be on good terms with her family Mm -hmm. and uh after their honeymoon to hopefully somewhere besides Montana, they actually settle in Spokane, and the two of them remain there for the rest of their lives. And as far as I could tell, they did not have any children together. But Margaret really becomes a pillar of the community, and she gets involved in several local organizations. Um, one of them is the Daughters of the Nile, which is a Seattle-based international fraternal organization for women 18 years or older who are related by birth or marriage to a Shriner, a Mason or another Daughter of the Nile. Um, So again, just uh, a way for, for women to get involved. And the Daughters of the Nile, they did and do charitable work for all 22 Shriners hospitals throughout the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. She was also part of the El Karnak Temple Number no. 6, which is just sort of another division of the Daughters of the Nile. And then she and I think her husband were also members of the Order of the Eastern Star, which is another fraternal organization dedicated to letting men and women, quote, give part of their time to many projects that benefit mankind, end quote. And it was organized by a former master mason who wanted to give women the opportunity to participate in quote benefits of knowledge and self-improvement that Freemasonry made available to men end quote and then she also volunteered at the Spokane Blind Center for many years so I think it seems clear that this was a mistake that she made and that she you know really turned her life around and and was willing to put that past behind her and you know we love to see it so, on December sixteenth, nineteen ninety-eight, Margaret Brooks Gold passed away in Spokane, Washington, at the age of ninety-two years old. Clint died less than a year later on September twelfth, nineteen ninety-nine, and they are actually buried together in Spokane Memorial Gardens. And that is Margaret Brooks, number, uh, wow. yeah, number oh uh, three eight three four
1: excellent works guy i i felt the same way when i knew her crime i was like oh she's just just didn't want to deal with mm-hmm. this new child and you know took a life because of that and oh it's like everything here it's way more complicated uh-huh. than that yeah. and
0: i mean and and too like you have to wonder like what options were truly available to her in terms of child care. And, um, you know, I've, I hate to say this even, but even abortion access, I'm sure would have been a concern of hers. And, you know, th- very little would have been available to her, I think. And so, you know, you're 20 years old, you are, you know, clearly you're not in any sort of committed relationship. The man who you believe to be the father or you know to be the father is not claiming this child not taking any responsibility Mm -hmm. Um, and if you know you are suffering from a disease that is causing you to think differently and act differently than you normally would I don't think she's an evil person and I don't think this was a you know a quick way to get out of that I think in the fact that she didn't give it up for adoption almost seems that she was willing to take that responsibility on or hoping that gaspard may have been willing to marry her because of it i don't know i mean all of this is of course speculation but you just have to wonder for women to an extent this is something that men never have to deal with and you know Mm -hmm. i think we do need to take that into consideration a little bit as well that so often we never know how these women are feeling about these things. And we only have their actions and we're quick to judge those actions. But that life is just complicated and emotions are complicated and everyone's situation is so different. Um, And so I really gained a lot of of sympathy for her. She admitted to it. She served her time for it and she behaved well in prison knowing that she would serve her time. And, And so I think it's clear that she was a good person who just made a mistake, as we see so often
1: yeah one thing i was thinking is like i wonder after she gave birth if if her child also you know was going to be debilitated by this venereal mm, disease good point. and so there could have been some sense of like you know i'm saving you from a life of uh, whatever this disease is going to bring with mm-hmm, it you know mm-hmm. like, very good point uh, yeah. what uh a, a disturbing and yeah, man, emotional.
0: Yeah, it's a tough one. Situation tough to be one. caught in. Yeah.
1: yeah, and then your family and everybody involved. Uh, it would just change your whole mm-hmm. life, and it yeah, drastically changed hers. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that yeah, she really did turn herself mm-hmm. around, and that's that's what I like to like to hear and like to share in this show.
0: Absolutely.
1: Oh well, great works, guys.
0: I've got unfortunately I have a another story coming later um, about a woman who commits crimes against children and it is not uh in any way sympathetic so um Ugh. at least we have this one to sort of you know i don't want to, you know it's not a positive story by any means but certainly um we can find sympathy with her
1: yeah and and other women who are in the same situation mm-hmm. even to this yeah, day that oh
0: absolutely Ugh.
1: things have not changed the, the human condition <laughs> is
0: just tough <laughs> Being a human is hard.
1: (laughs) Amen. (laughs) As we've all experienced in the last year, especially.
0: Well, another episode in the books.
1: Great work. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. And, uh, you know, go do something good with your time. Go make a whip. Send it to the Queen of England. And, uh, you know.
0: (laughs) The Queen of England, who, her jubilee was, she had some sort of jubilee, like, couple years ago right yeah i don't remember which one it was but i mean so you know fun fact is that the three longest reigning monarchs have all been women and uh i believe it's elizabeth and then victoria so there are parallels yeah
1: <laughs> totally
0: well till next week till
1: next week do your own time
0: and do your own number
1: we'll talk to you soon
0: bye If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.